Um, uh, hello. <laughs> There's my intro. Hello. Um, one of the things that we're, we're looking at today, as you see in the title, is the footprints. Um, one of the uh, rabbinical uh, sayings of old and uh, one of the, uh, the titles to one of the books that uh, are of the future that I enjoy uh, very much is by Arnold Frutenbaum called The Footsteps of the Messiah. And, and this uh, idea is that there's a trail that you can follow, and that trail is through the Scripture. Always fascinated in movies by trackers, you know, have these expert trackers who can look at uh, footprints and how the grass is and this and that. <laughs> they know where people are, like hound dogs or something like that. Always fascinating. And uh, through the Scripture, if we're... Um, humble enough and alert enough to look for it. We see this this trail uh, that leads to a certain future. And uh, there's a lot in the future that goes, that is um, not a part of our eternity, but what we're looking at now, the tribulation, the second coming, and the judgment of mankind. And, um, you know, what we learn from that future even the tribulational period, is uh, something that has tremendous application to us now. Uh, and that's what we're going to continue to explore. Uh, today we're going to see the footsteps. The things that have occurred or will occur in the tribulation have already uh, begun. And they have, um, they've been festering in this world since the resurrection of Christ, since the start of the church. They've been festering. But there's a reason why they haven't, come to full bloom, and that is because God has restrained them. And as soon as he removes his restraint, they will. So what's coming that is is going to be so intense is here now under restraint. And we, uh, who are free from all of that, you know, free by the blood of Christ, are witnesses and lights to the world and to those who are trapped in those things, trapped in the uh, the things that are to come, but are also now here in a, in a less intense form. And still, if you're trapped in them, whether they're very intense or less intense, you're still a slave. So um, <clears throat> we're going to start in our passage in 2 Thessalonians 2. And let's begin with prayer, as we always do. Let's thank God for our time to... Hear his word, which is always a privilege, and to be able to take that as a as a privilege, um, and to humbly listen to what God would say to you concerning your own life and the future uh, that you and I both will face. So, with that in mind, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed to us what you will do and what is to come. We thank you that you're um, in control of everything as you show us. Uh, your time on things, you do not show us. And that's, that's fine. 
if we knew the timing of things, we'd get all messed up, and planning and so on. We let you plan and then just submit to you. That's what you've given us to do. Submit to you, submit to your will, and we trust you for all of how it will come about or, or all outcomes. And your word reveals this to us. So as our Lord picked up his cross and followed you, we pick up ours and follow him, denying ourselves and losing our lives for his sake that we may find them. We thank you for your grace and your love. And in this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, the worldwide and intense apostasy that is to come in the tribulation has been festering since the Lord's resurrection. Um, and, and really, we could say when he started to teach on the mystery, meaning our Lord did in Matthew 13, uh, came about when Israel had rejected him, outright, plainly rejected him. And that's when he started to teach in parables in a way that spoke of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and you know, we find ourselves in that now, and yet while we're in today and we know that we're to live for today and not worry about tomorrow, right? And that we live one day at a time. We often ask ourselves, why do we need to know prophecy if I'm living for today? You know, And, and if prof- the only prophecy I'm waiting for is the rapture of the church. And if that happened today, then I'm not here anymore. So why do I care about prophecy? And there's a lot of it. I mean, how many Christians have read the book of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel? You know, those big prophetic books. (laughs) I think, yeah, I don't really want to read that. You know, I I don't understand a great deal of it. But there's a reason why it's recorded for us. And that's the first thing that should tip, tip us off is that God put it in his word and therefore it's important to know. And whether we know why it's important or not, we need to know it both all the Old Testament and the New. But um, we find out that what God reveals about what his plans are for the future are definitely important for us today. And I mean this very day. Because in this very day, I am tempted and you are tempted to the things that are going to experience the wrath of God in the future. I'm not going to experience the wrath of God. No believer is. But I'm tempted to the things that are going to. Uh, I'm also tempted to look to the things of the earth uh, as a comfort or as a source of happiness. Or as Paul told, told, told us in uh, Colossians 3, to seek the things that are above and not the things that are on the earth. Do not concentrate or focus on the things of the earth. And there's a reason for that. And one of the things is is kingdoms. It's a huge main theme, actually, throughout the Scripture, is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men. In the last book of the Bible, we have two cities that are uh, highlighted, Jerusalem and Babylon. Jerusalem is God's. Babylon's is Satan's. And there's stuff going on in both that are, are really important to us. How about money? Economics? Those things are I'm tempted with to get absorbed with money or absorbed with things. 
How about sexual things or popularity or pride? I mean, how often are we tempted to pride? Every day. And yet, what is the beast if not proud? He says, I'm God, for God's sakes. And, you know, so it's important to know what God reveals about the future. It opens our eyes to that which is true. And when, and also, thank God for this, that we're forgiven. So when we are proud, when you are acting like a beast, not the beast, but a beast, that you're forgiven and you can confess and repent of your beastliness and get back to being the humble servant of God that you should be. And so that's why it's important. So um, we see first, let's, uh, we're going to talk about the tribulation a little bit more uh, just to kind of get some facts about it. And that's just in case any listening who don't know too much about it. So here's our main passage, verses 1 through 4 in 2 Thessalonians 2. Is now Paul writes, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come or is present among you. Uh, and so, uh, obviously, someone had leaked or spoken to, whether it's a gift of prophecy in the church or someone wrote them a letter, that they thought that perhaps because of the great amount of persecution that they were facing, which we see in this letter and in the first letter, that it is perhaps that they were in the, this time that Paul had taught them about the day of the Lord. Uh, back in, in the First Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul said the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And they're like, well, did it come? And maybe we missed, I don't know. And then Paul said something about us being raptured and... You know, had that happened, and maybe we missed it. And so Paul, therefore, is referencing uh, some things that are going to happen in the tribulation so that they know, because that's where the, tri- the day of the Lord begins here, at the tribulation. And so we, or they, would know that they have not missed the rapture, nor are they in the tribulation. So verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you. Again, that's an exhortation. That wouldn't just apply to eschatology. That would apply to everything. Because one of the things we have and have always had in this age of the church is false teachers. They've always been and always will be. Uh, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. So that's what we're kind of focusing on here is this word, the apostasy, uh, and what that is. And connected with the apostasy, which is a rebellion against God. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And so we have here first, just in order of what is to come, this again is not meant, I'm, I'm just thrown this together. It's not meant to be any fancy kind of dispensation chart. But we have the church and then we have the rapture. This thing here, this interim, is just that 
when the rapture happens, we know the tribulation starts when the uh, Antichrist or beast or whatever title you want to give them, man of lawlessness, makes a covenant with Israel. We assume that that can't happen on the exact same day of the rapture. So there's some kind of space of time. Uh, that, that's not important, though. Because what we're going to see in this study, uh, and we're not just studying the tribulation. We're actually, to do that, you have to look at prophecy in general. And in prophecy, time is elastic. It's very elastic. It's like God could prophesy something, and it's like going to happen in five minutes. Or, or it could happen in a million years. And, you know, in the context of the sentence, you're like, well, he doesn't really tell you. And how, this, you know, how is this going to develop? How long is the church going to go on? When the rapture happens, we know, well, it happens in a moment. But how long is this interim? Nobody knows, nor does God care to tell us. Because we'll see today with God, his timing, not even remotely like. It's not, not that it's not ours. It's not like ours. If to you a thousand years is a day, so we like that one. You say, well, wow, time goes by really fast. But don't forget the flip side, too. A day is a thousand years. Times go, time goes by really slowly. And to God, it's both. Then comes the tribulation. There's two halves here. I know there's two halves in everything. That's <laughs> always a silly thing to put down. But uh, the first three and a half years and the second three and a half years, they're distinct in the scripture. Then comes the second coming, which is where Christ institutes his kingdom. Then that kingdom is the millennial reign. The second coming happens in a day. Does it take two days? You know, God doesn't tell us. He's not concerned. And then the final judgment is after the millennium. And that's GWTJ, Great White Throne Judgment is uh, the judgment of all unbelievers in sin. So uh, the preparation for of Israel, that's what we're looking at. This beast, when he goes into the temple that we just read, that's the second half. So if we take the tribulation and cut it straight in half, oops, yeah, straight in half, that's not a very straight line, but, oh, I almost hit the middle of the word there. Um it's in right at that division that this man of lawlessness enters the temple. And the second half of the tribulation is way worse than the first. Some have thought that the first half of the tribulation is some kind of paradise on earth. I don't read that. It's still really bad. But the second half is a lot worse than the first half. That's for sure. So the two reasons for the tribulation. Uh, the first and foremost is Israel's being prepared for their Messiah. And with the coming Messiah, and that's this age, this millennial age, the covenant promises to Israel are going to be fulfilled by Christ. Abrahamic, Davidic, Palestinian, New Covenant, all going to be fulfilled by Christ. Uh, The second part to it, though, is the wrath of God, not just against Israel, but against all nations. Everywhere on earth, no exceptions. So the tribulation period, that's what we focus on, is seven years, as we see in Daniel 9, as preparation of Israel for her Messiah. The seven years of wrath of God are on the nation's sin, and that's what he pinpoints 
right? It's sinners, it's pride, it's lawlessness, it's unfaithfulness, it's the rebellion, the apostasy. That's what God's wrath is being poured out upon. And again, the second three and a half years are the worst of it. We see that in Revelation. Counted to the day, by the way, uh, 1,260 days. Right? So that's three and a half years in terms of Jewish months. We have to kind of say that because the Jewish month is 30 days. Every one of them is 30 days. Uh, so the apostasy is the rebellion against God. As we saw yesterday, it's both political and religious. It's a rebellion against God's uh, a gift to mankind of freedom, of self-determination, of the ability to own property. That's a gift from God, by the way. His laws to Israel were like, you all get your land and you're going to keep it, even if you lose it by being uh, lazy or dumb or someone takes advantage of you. And the year of Jubilee, you get it all back. So, um, you know, God has a political way. And yet that, when has that ever been? And the United States of America has been the closest in the history of mankind. It puts us in a very exciting and unique time to live. You know, and that's something that could be looked at here in, in reference to God's political desires. Uh, certainly, religiously, uh, in the tribulation, there'll be a worldwide forced worship of the beast and his image. As we saw yesterday, the false prophet, who is the beast's right-hand man, uh, will murder those who don't worship the beast. And for those who don't get the mark of the beast, they won't be able to be involved in society at all with the risk of starving to death. Uh, and, and so that's not fair. It's also a terrible religious system that's worldwide. Worships the beast as the Messiah. It's extremely immoral, which I find wonderfully ironic you know, mankind's epitome of religion is immorality. We scratch our heads and we say, what, are, what is mankind like? Stupid as all get out. Without God. With God, brilliant. We can, we, for those who depend upon God, they get wisdom, they get insight, they get... Uh, they know how to live in righteousness, they know how to control themselves... They become like Christ. But independent from God, no one does good. Nobody. Uh, for instance, in the tribulation, when the fourth seal is broken in Revelation chapter 6, one-fourth of the earth's population is killed. At the sixth trumpet, one-third of the population is killed. Millions, millions, all at once. Um, the Lord tells us in Matthew 24 that the great tribulation, uh, with that, that phrase, great tribulation, some people think it only refers to the second half of the tribulation, which is several passages which seem to indicate that. Um, but Jesus says in Matthew 24, the world's never seen such a time and will never see one again. The prophets describe it as a day of wrath, a day of trouble, a day of distress, and it's obviously more than a day, right? So day just is a reference to a period of time. Desolation, gloominess, darkness, a day of death. Satan, his beast, and false prophet exact a great persecution and murder against people 
especially against the saints. But the real person behind it all is God. You know, in the whole movement in Christianity of, hey, God is just love. God doesn't really care what you do, whether you're gay or you're straight, whether you're trans or you're not, whether you're this or that or whatever. God doesn't care. He just loves everybody. And hold, the holiness of God is not taught. It's not expressed. It make, to tell these people that God is the one who brings about the tribulation. They're not going to accept that. But it's absolutely true. The holiness of God must be obeyed by His people. You say, well, I haven't obeyed it, and, you know, I don't live in a tribulation. That's because God loves you and is patient. But you're missing out on God's life, and the discipline will come upon you. And it's a good thing for it to come. Uh, it's God's wrath upon sin. Well, he prepares his client nation Israel to receive her Messiah and the fulfillment of the covenant promises. Jesus also says in Matthew 24 that if the days were not shortened, that no flesh would have been saved. John in the book of Revelation calls the tribulation the wrath of God, the winepress of the wrath of God, vials, vials of the wrath of God poured out on earth. All nations shall taste of the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. His wrath, not Satan's, his. So intense is the suffering that even the kings of the earth, the rich, will say, will pray that the mountains fall on them that they may die. That's in Revelation chapter 6. They pray for it. And as uh, Dwight Pentecost in one of his books says, he says, quote, Here we find the greatest volume of prayer that has ever gone up from the face of the earth, but it is not ascending to Almighty God. They're all praying for the mountains to fall on them. They're not praying to God. Pentecost thinks it's the greatest or the most volume of prayer that's ever been heard. Strong evidence points to the fact that the church will not experience this time, but at some point, imminently, she will be caught up or raptured from the earth, and then the tribulation period will start soon after. So what I've been trying to do is, in my own way, is uh, not to do classes on the events of the tribulation. Uh, I find that it's kind of almost like dry history. Not that we shouldn't know the events of the tribulation. We need to know them. Uh, it's just that we should never know them outside of application. Right? We should know them in terms of how they apply to us. Odds are you're not going to remember them all, or even if you do, remember them in order. And you say, well, wait a minute. What happens first? When does this happen? When does that happen? If you don't get all of that right, it's not in near. I don't think it's a big deal at all, actually. What is important? is that you see the, the reason why God is doing this. That is important. And it's application to you. Right? There's a who's, like, big things that you need to remember. Who's bringing wrath in the time of the tribulation? It's God. It's not any creature. It's not Satan. It's not the beast. It's not any people. God is the one bringing this. That shows us too. It's a big thing that need, you need to remember. That Satan is a pawn in God's, on God's chessboard. He's not independently working. 
God doesn't force sin, and he doesn't, he doesn't make sin happen. But you know, God is the one who is controlling all of this. All of history is in his hand. And therefore, also, you know, why is, is sin a bad thing? Is, is there some kind of sin or area of sin or ways of sin or amount of sin that's not all that bad? And the answer is no. Because God is bringing, like there's any passage you go to, Old Testament and New, that describes the tribulation, there's, there's nothing good said. Not once. Not once. Not once is there, well, you know, it won't be that bad. <laughs> Weather will be nice. You know, it doesn't say any, there's not one nice thing to say about it. Now, between the first and second coming of Christ, we find a mystery age. And when I, I include the tribulation in that, and I, I'm taking this right from Christ's words in Matthew 13, the church is definitely a mystery. The uh, fact of the tribulation in the Old Testament was not a mystery. But when you add or read the book of Revelation and what more information we get in the New Testament, the placing of it, the timing of it, and more of the details of it, the Old Testament didn't know. Uh, the fact that this would be an age in which the Messiah would be rejected and then be in heaven for an indeterminate amount of time while he allowed things to play out on earth uh, in the special way that they are during this age and the soon, soon coming after us, the tribulation. This was not known. Um, the truth, the truths concerning our age to do have to do with God's plans for mankind, his kingdom, his judgment, his salvation. I mean his salvation also of our bodies going to heaven. Uh, that is called a deliverance or a salvation. And when, as I said before, when we're looking at these footsteps, if we say, well, you know, I'm not going to be in that age of the tribulation, or, I'm, you know, since I'm not going to be there, what do I care? And the reason that we need to care is because the, um, the forerunners, the uh, the the precursors of what is to come are here now and they have through this mystery age they've always been here so the first when christ starts teaching on this mystery age the first parable he teaches is the parable of the sowers and it's the fourth group so you have satan taking away seed and then you have the worries of the world uh the the seed that tries to grow up amongst the thorns and the thistles there's the deceitfulness of riches, the worries of the world, the boastful pride of life. These are all things that we find magnified in the tribulation. Satan plucking seed from the side of the road, that's a tribulation in a nutshell. And yet it's here, but it's restrained. And so while we live for today, we must not fall into the error of thinking that life itself only consists of the events of today. I do not. I only, and, and this, you know, we, we have to make sure we get it right in our heads. Christ told us, don't worry about tomorrow. Yeah, we're not concerned about tomorrow, but I know about tomorrow. 
That doesn't mean I'm worried about it. But I know what is to come. So much is involved in the truth. And God's future program is a part of that truth. We live in light of it. We'll see a passage tomorrow where Christ says, I'm telling you all these things so that you'll look up. And he means us. He means us before these things come. In essence, he says, I want you looking up. He leaves us to be intelligent enough to know that we're not to walk around looking up all the time, falling into holes, running into walls, you know. But he means in our hearts. And it really, it's a beautiful way of saying I'm coming soon, quickly, and you don't know when. Look up. If I'm looking up, I'm not really concerned about what's going on down here. I'm not wor- Just like he told me, don't be worried about it. You're more valuable than the sparrows that I take care of every day. So the things of the future tribulation have been forming throughout this age, but they have been restrained by God. So look at the next part of 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 5. Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things, what we just read about the beast? So it shows us that Paul already taught them this, right? They already knew. They just thought they were in it. And you know what restrains him now. Ah, you almost long for Paul. Paul, why not write it anyway? Then there's no, this is one of the debated things. Of the hundreds, perhaps thousands of things that are debated amongst pastors and theologians and denominations from the scripture, this is one of them. Who's the restrainer? Is it the church? Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it the completed scripture? Oh, there's all kinds of theories. The two ones that are really in contention are the Holy Spirit and the church. Perhaps together. Uh, but you know what? If God doesn't tell me, I'm a, I am of the philosophy. If God doesn't tell me, I am unconcerned. What I'm concerned, I'm concerned about what He tells me. And what He's telling us here is that this whole thing is restrained right now. And you so and you know what restrains Him now, so that in His time He will be revealed. But notice verse seven. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Well, see, you couple, there's a passage in 1 John where John says, many antichrists have already come. Right? Those who oppose Christ. Anti, against. That's what that word apostasy means. It means rebellion, to be against or to leave. And so this mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains him will do so until he is taken up out of the way. So there's going to come a time when he, this man of lawlessness, not that we would assume he lives now, maybe he does, I don't know, but there's kind of come a time there's going to come a time where he's going to be revealed. Now notice why he can be revealed because God lets him so again, who's in control? God is. It's not. It's this isn't Satan saying, "Oh, I got the right guy," and "Ooh, you know, all this is going to work," and now I'm going to put the plan into action. 
I wonder how many times Satan has thought he might do that. And God was like, no, you're not going to do it now. You're only going to do it when I say you can do it. Who is truly in control? We need worry about nothing. Nothing. Nothing in our lives need we worry. We need to be taking care of our issues and our problems. Absolutely. Some people jump to the next and say, let go and let God. I don't do anything. That is a false doctrine that leads to more sin and laziness. We've got plenty to do. But we don't have to fret. So when one looks back through the pages of secular history, he finds a continuous and unbroken record of rebellion against God. Continuous. Individuals, groups of people, nations. Civilization after civilization, nation after nation have walked in the way of godlessness and unrighteousness. Um... And to this point, even the unbeliever, even in pagan religions, there's usually some kind of apocalypse in which the gods either fight it out or the winning god is going to judge and do his terrible thing on earth. All generations have somewhat, or some people I should say, in all generations have anticipated God's wrath upon the earth. Because we all know that you know, we don't really live up to any level of holiness. Now, believers know this. Unbelievers, I think, I think some of them do know it and don't care. And a lot of them, or perhaps all of them, do know. That's that conviction of God in their heart that there's something wrong with them. And yet they, they put this off and ignore it. Uh, and... Satan has a uh, a program in place at which a human being starts to think about what's wrong with them and then starts to really think about what they are and who they are in and of themselves. And then they're motivated to do something else. In other words, <coughs> you know... Uh, is a phone call. Uh, someone bings you on your phone from Facebook. Uh, someone calls you and says, let's go to lunch. Some new thing comes on TV. Uh, whatever. What Satan doesn't want anybody to do, any human to do, is to truly start to think about things that will lead them to the gospel. Remember, that as we've seen here, free will is an issue. It's also coupled with the fact that God has elected before the foundation of the world, no doubt. But in ways that we don't understand, we saw, is it yesterday, I think, that <clears throat> Jesus said, I wanted to gather you to myself like a hen gathers chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Unwilling. And what makes me think about this is I was looking, I just finished my flood book that I do. I listen, and listen to books. I've become so addicted to listening to good books on my way into work and home that, you know, I actually get very excited when I finish one and I get a new one. Uh, but, you know, they're from the library and I got to look around and see something that I like. And I've tried things. and I'm like, yeah, I don't like this. And I look for something else. 
And I was looking this morning, and I found screw tape letters. And I'm like, and I've read it like twice, probably. But I'm like, man, I'm studying tribulation right now. This could be cool. And it is. I started it this morning, just like, whatever, three chapters. Each chapter in that book is a letter. Uh, <clears throat> the audio book's only four hours long, so it's a short book. And I would say, I would rec- as we're going through this study, if you like to read, I understand if you're in the middle of something good and you don't want to put it down, I would. this would be a nice complement to what we're looking at now. And in the opening of that book, this is one of the things that Wormwood, who's the uncle, is, yeah, no, Screwtape's the uncle, uh, is instructing his nephew Wormwood on, on how to tempt the person that he's in charge of. And, and it's about this stuff. One of the things that they, he talks about is, you know, how to keep people occupied with the very next thing they're about to do. And so they never really think about anything. And, and here we have something very similar. A time is coming, God says, where my wrath is going to come upon the world. And the response of the world is, yeah, yeah. The church has been saying that, if they know this, but the church has been saying that for years. And by the way, I'm, I'm a whole 20 years old now, and I've never seen anything like that. And it's the one idea that the world's always going to go on the way that it, that it is now. But the reason why people are such suckers for that is because they live their whole lives are what's happening now. You know, who's on Facebook? What's on my phone? It's especially the phone. You know, remember, we showed a while ago, we showed this little video clip. Actually, now that I think about it, it would be a good time to show it again, maybe tomorrow, about... This wonderful job that some church organization did that depicted a man going through his life from breakfast to bed, going from one thing to the other to the other to the other to the other, and never stopping once to think about anything really important, anything, and just being entertained. That's uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. That's one of the premises of that book, is that the Brave New World is a world in which people are just entertained. And when they get kind of wigged out, they take Soma. It's a, it's, the, it's a perfect drug that doesn't give you hangovers, but it makes you high enough that you don't care about stuff. Can you imagine? What, no hangovers? <laughs> but you're still not walking with God in your real mind. If such a thing existed, believe me, God would not ever allow such a thing to exist, I don't think. But anyway, that's what it is. As Christians, we can fall into the same trap. You know, I know my Bible, I know my word, I know what's, yeah, the tribulation is coming, what do I care? Prophecy, what do I care? What's the doctrine that applies to my problem right now? And believe me, God's going to give you that doctrine. He cares about you. Whatever you got going on in your head now that's bothering you, he, he's got the, the doctrine that's going to help you with that. But that's not all he has for you. And we could fall into the trap that we're going to shut out. We don't, I don't want to learn that right now. That's not what I'm dealing with. 
But someday you are going to deal with it. Or, or in a, what we really need to remember is that the entire realm of revelation is needed for us in our hearts. We need to know everything about it. And now that we're looking at this, to my, you know, I haven't studied eschatology in quite some time. And now that I'm looking at it again, it's, uh, I see how much more important it is than I have ever thought it to be. It's very important for us. Go to Second Peter chapter 3. Uh, one of the guys who does, uh, John Anderson, he's from Australia. He does some wonderful uh, on YouTube uh, interviews with various people, you know, famous people or authors or whatever. He's a Christian guy. He's conservative. And uh, this latest one that he did, and I've only seen bits and pieces of it, is with this gal. I never, I never heard of her before. But they're talking about the sexual revolution and, you know, what that did to society. Uh, It started in Germany in like the 30s and the 40s, and it came to America and really hit hit here in the 60s. And, you know, and then here comes birth control, which allows, you know, there's no more risk really of getting pregnant from, you know, being sexual. And so no risk. So, you know, whatever, uh, have as much as you like and all of that. And uh, one of the things that they brought out or she brought out is that um, now when, especially in the West, Europe and America, uh, this the North American continent, that we are the most comfortable and the most well taken care of, least at risk as a society we've ever been, ever. And the birth rates have declined rapidly. So the, the birth rates have, have gotten so low, not only here but all over the world, that we're actually committing suicide. Because it, it, what's going to happen is we're just not going to have enough to maintain the people who are here, and who knows what's going to happen from that. Of course, I'm not worried. God's had all that under control. But it's a fascinating thing to see why aren't people having kids. And they don't want to have kids. It gets involved in their lifestyles. They want a nice house. And they don't want to pay for kids. They want to do what they want. You know, when you don't have kids, you invest in you. When you have kids, well, you know, you know. A whole bunch of your time and investment and energy has to go into them. But as God has done it, the reward is long-term. And, and just like it is with Christianity, the reward, while I'm struggling to learn what's in here, and I'm fumbling, and I'm bumbling, and I'm sinning, and I'm not getting it, but God says, keep reading, keep learning, Yeah, I know you don't understand eschatology or why in the world it is important to you right now, but keep learning. You will. There's a long-term reward that in such things, long-term rewards are permanent rewards. But hedonism, which is what this world is, 
is short-term reward. And God has made us so that short-term reward has long-term effects that are wrong, that are bad. And that's the way he made us. So it turns out, like, what are all the ramifications to just living for self now and not caring about the truth of things? And one of the truths of things in a society is having families. Two parents, biological parents of those kids who together are raising those kids. That builds a strong society. That's long term, though. But we live in the now. Who cares? Who cares about long term? Who cares? These things that are in the Bible were written thousands of years ago. They don't matter anymore. What, where does people buy that? Why do they buy that? Because they live in the now. You know what's important now? Whatever is on Fox News right now, that's what's important. What's ever on the news cycle, whatever Facebook's putting up there, whatever is the latest craze, the latest thing society needs, the latest thing that I want, that's what life is. And we have no idea what life really is. And you see, God has allowed this. It's fascinating to me how God has done this because if we could get all we wanted in a jiffy like we want it, we would never truly be committed to it. And that's what God wants for us. And it's the only way to have it. The only way to have good is to be committed to good, to know what it is, to love what it is, to do what it is, to actually participate in it as an active member of the good who knows all about it. That's the only way that when evil comes against you, you would hold your ground on the good because you know what it is. You do what it is. And you love what it is. And if you're in the moment, and that's all you care about is the moment, the next thing. And so where I started on this tangent was in screw tape letters. That's one of the advices. The one of the pieces of advice that screw that screw tape gives to his nephew. Keep your man away from thinking too much. All right. Look at Second Peter three three. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Now this would refer to the second coming of Christ, but it also could refer to rapture. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. That by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction and destruction of ungodly men. So in this first part, we see, uh, well, verses uh, three through seven. That the, ma- the mockers in the last days will come. Right, so last days, when is last days? Are we in it? Is it then? Is it, you know, when, when is it? God doesn't tell us. He just tells us that this is coming. And what Peter is here is saying that, well, 
We might be in the last days, but we might not be. So why doesn't God tell us that? He wants us to keep looking, searching. Um, And by looking and searching, we're always learning. We're always looking to what is to come. And if there are mockers today, and there are, obviously, and there have been throughout this age, it doesn't mean we're, that this last days thing is now. It just means that in the future, more are going to come. In our experience, the mockers don't just mock the second coming. They mock change. Anything that will change the natural cycle of things. The natural cycle of things, notice what they say um, In verse 4, where is the promise of his coming forever since the fathers fell asleep? All continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. That's what they mock. Change. So what is going to change? Well, when the rapture happens, I can only imagine what a change that will be to this earth. When the tribulation comes, huge change. Are things going to go on the way that they always have? No. The second coming, huge change. The millennial reign, huge change. So when the rapture happens, change starts coming to earth. Massive change. Massive change. And our focus on the tribulation is going to be a change in which the what is happening on this earth that is being restrained is no longer going to be restrained and that the wrath of God is going to be poured out on this earth. Uh, so, when, now, here's the, and we'll, we can pause right here. We'll come back to this. That uh, Peter says this, which seems kind of confusing in verse 5. When they maintain this, it escapes their notice. And that means they're willfully ignorant, that they should notice it, but they don't. That by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. Now, we know this from other passages that when God spoke, he created. He didn't speak and then make it. His word creates it. So when he spoke, let there be light, there's light. Okay, so by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. But the, the earth is land and water, but we go all the way back to Genesis 1, 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in verse 2, we have the Holy Spirit moving over the surface of the waters. And that is likely what Peter is referencing here. There's God moving over the surface of the waters. And then he says, let there be light. What Peter's referencing is that a super long, how we don't know how long, right? But a long time ago, God created the heavens and the earth, and the heaven was formless, the earth was formless and void. And we still, we don't know, was that, is that an interim period? You know, we've all been taught that, and it's not super clear. But what's important here is that when the Spirit moved over the surface of the waters, then God started to create. So the earth was made from the word of God. Then he says, let there be light. Let there be the separation of the waters. Let there be land. Let there be vegetation. Let there be birds. Let there be fish and so on. 
What is Peter saying here? What is he bringing out? That no, things don't always remain the way that they are. When the earth was formless and void, God didn't leave it that way. He changed it in six days. I mean, he could have done it in two seconds, but he decided to take six days. He changed it. Okay, so that's the first thing. God intervenes and he changes things. Just because he hasn't changed it in so many thousands of years, Peter's going to say, well, to God, a thousand years is a day. That's like us saying to each other, hey, why did you change? You know, you didn't change that two seconds ago or whatever. You know, it's a, a, a minuscule to God. Time is minuscule. The second thing in verse 6 is another change. Through which the world, verse 6, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Now that is likely, and I think pretty clearly, a reference to the flood of Noah. And, you know, did things change, you think? (laughs) A world populated with how many, we don't know, or millions of people, ended up with eight. And water just destroyed everything. Yeah, God intervenes. So what is the, and, and, and this truth to us as we apply this. Things are going to change. When God brings judgment, change, rapture, second coming, whatever, it happens fast. And just because things haven't changed here on earth for thousands of years doesn't mean nothing. Means nothing. This idea that we're all going to go on the way that it is always been is ludicrous. So here I close with this. To God, time is elastic. 2,000 years since the resurrection of Christ, right? 2,000 years almost since the Pentecost and the church. Hundreds of years. How how many years since the Democrats have been in power? (laughs) That's a shorter period of time. But then, you know, for some of us, we're like, oh my God, this is going to go on forever. What if they rig every election and they're in power all the time? To God, this is like two seconds of time. I think you can handle it, believer. Be a light to the world. uh, Time is elastic, for sure. But everything is going to go exactly to his plan. Now, when we finish this passage, God, what Peter's going to say, look, he changed it when he made the earth. He changed it when he flooded the earth, and he's going to change it again, but this time with fire. And we go forward to the book of Revelation, and we see all these judgments that have fire. Fire from the bowls, from the seals, from the trumpets. There's several of them are fiery judgments that are going to destroy. Now, for us, we... Therefore, as Peter will bring out here, our souls, our hearts, need to look like the environment of the kingdom that's coming. And that kingdom that's coming, when Christ establishes it, 
which of which we are members. And we just look out into eternity. Righteousness, holiness, blamelessness, obedience. On top of that, not just grudgingly, joyfully, gently, peaceably, happy, hopeful, all that. Wise, self-controlled, understanding, forgiving, not judging, all of it. Everything that Christ is, that's going to be here for us. And no matter what's going on here, this is super temporary. And the whole thing can change at any moment. The tribulation teaches us that what is exactly God going to pour His wrath out onto. And those things we want no part of as His believers. And that is sin, pride, all of it. You know what they are. So we'll continue in 2 Peter 3. There's another passage we need to continue. And I need to make a clear plan so I don't forget any of it. So we get it all in. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. And thank you that you um, are so gracious to us, patient with us, and that we know we're forgiven as we strive to be that which you have called us to be, to be those who members of your kingdom now think like that kingdom, live like that kingdom and our lights to this dark world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.